Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Well, Wendy, it's fun to come on back and talk to everybody after we played at a place with a little piece of pop culture. That's my yes, indeed. That's my alliteration for the week, actually. <laughs> yes, and while we were there, we turned it up to eleven, didn't we? We did. We certainly did. This one goes to eleven, <laughs> and it did. We were at Shank Hall in Milwaukee this weekend, and why that was is fun is because in the movie This Is Spinal Tap. Uh, which is one of our favorites. They're supposed to play at a fictitious club in Milwaukee named Shank Hall. Right. And uh, the owner of the the bar Shank Hall in Milwaukee, he used to book the UWM ballroom in the 1980s. And he booked Spinal Tap there. And, awesome. And he said if they would ever open a club in Milwaukee, he'd name it Shank Hall. And then he did that in 1989. What a cool idea. Yeah. And so they, they didn't end up ever playing uh, Shank Hall. But they did do a press conference there in 1992. So Christopher Guest and, um, oh, I can't remember, Hank Shearer and Michael McKean. Michael McKean, who's got a connection to Milwaukee anyway, because he was Lenny from uh, Laverne and Shirley. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, that's pretty cool, making fiction into reality. Yeah, you know? right. <laughs> Taking that part of the movie and making it a thing, and and then our band got to play at it. So. Yes, and so we were there it's, this weekend, this Friday. A couple degrees away from Spinal Tap, Mike. Yeah, we're, we're working on it. Like I was going to say, I was going to say, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Right. <laughs> but we had a great time, and uh, congratulations to our friends in the band Well-Known Strangers, who had their EP release party that night. Yeah. It was a good time. Sounded Milwaukee's good. always a great time. Mm-hmm. Thanks to everyone who came out to that show. Yes. We didn't find any ghost stories, but... We did have a little pop culture story for you, so that was a lot of fun. And we are going to be talking about things like that, pop culture, ghost stories, cool other things like that, at the Patreon Hangout this Wednesday. That is May 9th. 9th. Yes. And uh, don't forget, if you are coming to that, if you have time to tune into an episode of Ghosts in the Hood, <laughs> last week we decided that would be our, our fun little project for the week to have something to talk about mm-hmm. um, new to most of us, so... I watched a little bit of it last night. Mike, have you? Uh, I'm saving it up, saving okay. it up for uh, tomorrow. Big, I'm, so I'm all prepared. For and the, I will for the not hangout. spoil it then. I Excellent. will not spoil it. But that's the thing. So part of our Patreon community, and if you guys need to check that out, you can check it out at othersidepodcast.com/slash/donate. Uh, we get together with a hangout every month, and we just we talk about paranormal stuff. So, and this week is TV show club. Uh, but we love to hang out with the people that listen to the podcast regularly and want to support it. And you guys can become part of that at othersidepodcast.com slash donate. And we hope to hang out with you this Wednesday. Yes. You know what else happens this Wednesday, Wendy? What happens? Well, Dr. Jack Hunter's new book, Engaging the Anomalous, Ooh. collected essays on anthropology, the paranormal, media ship, and extraordinary experience comes out. Right up our alley here at See You on the Other Side. Yeah, and it, it's, it's cool because it's being published by the same company that did UFOs, Reframing the Debate. That's Robbie Graham's book. Oh, really yeah. Featured in a two-part interview 
uh, last one. fall. Yes. What I really like about this book, and I've had a chance to preview it and browse through it and get through a lot of it most of this weekend, was that it's nice to see a book that talks about paranormal experiences with like a bibliography, with like a work cited. Like it can go in and say, this is, came from this journal, it came from this article, it came from... So, uh. so you're a lot of times you, you're just reading about this stuff on the internet or you know in, in some book that... Or it's just anecdotal. Right, where they don't care about citing, the, you know, works in the past and going through. And that, that's the beautiful thing about academic stuff is that it, ha- it has to. Yep. And so Jack really has done his research here. And in the interview, he's going to give us some cool stories about anthropologists, you know, what they've seen, like paranormal stuff, uh, some of his own experience, and then just a little bit about how we can approach studying paranormal stuff, investigating it ourselves uh, from a more holistic perspective than just like going through and saying, oh, I know what this is. This is just all in your head. Or, or I know what this is. Even just saying, I know what this is. It's all ghosts. Right. Well, I can't wait to hear it, so uh, why don't we get right to the interview? All right. What's up, Doc? Dr. Jack Hunter is an anthropologist in the United Kingdom, also the editor and founder of the online journal Paranthropology, the Journal of Anthropological Approaches to the Paranormal. His new book is a collection of essays entitled Engaging the Anomalous, and it's available starting this Wednesday. Jack joins Allison and I today. He's in the UK. We're in Wisco. Jack, how you doing, man? Good, thanks. How are you doing? Yay, Jack! <laughs> so glad to have you back on. <laughs> Dr. Jack, we can call him now. since. Oh, Dr. Jack, so, that's right. I yeah. feel like we've been there since the beginning of his evolution. <laughs> from, from non-doctor to doctor. Yeah. So wonderful. Yeah, so congratulations on that. That's probably, I mean, I heard it's pretty easy, right? Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty <laughs> straightforward. <laughs> yeah. Just like show up every day. Yeah. It's like as long as you pay your tuition, right? No, I know how what uh, what kind of thing it can be. Um, you know, you wrote this new book, Engaging the Anomalous, yeah. as a, like in, in parallel to your doctoral thesis. As, as- yep, pretty much. The thesis actually contains a lot of the a lot of the chapters in this book, but kind of expanded and developed. So basically, I wrote these all of these the chapters in this book over the last seven years or so. Yeah, and it's so wide ranging. I mean, there's just so much in there. So you know, we might have have to have you back again uh, yeah. because you know, I, I just don't know how we're going to cover it all. But you know, so you're an anthropologist, mm-hmm. and I think you know uh, what we really want to get to is is I know you've been inspired by others to take this path, you know, other anthropologists who experienced extraordinary things. And I think Mm. our audience really wants to hear, you know, what are some of those extraordinary experiences that, that have so far, um, eluded attempts to be explained away, you know, and who are these people, um, who studied Mm -hmm. these things? Well, when you think about first about anthropologists, let's get out there. So we have this idea of an anthropologist, Mm -hmm who is living in the jungle or whatever with a you know some tribe yeah. taking notes and stuff like that and maybe peyote or whatever mm-hmm. but the idea of the anthropologist so like who you know what was the when you talk about the inspiration and things that might have happened to some of these people also let's make sure we talk about the context mm-hmm. you know did it happen while they were on location were they you know doing some research because i think that that also adds something to the story as you know a little bit to the story as well yeah, yeah, that's a vital aspect of it. When I first decided that I wanted to uh, to start researching the paranormal from an anthropological perspective, I 
I did as much kind of background reading as I possibly could. I tried, I wanted to find out how, for how long anthropologists have been engaging with these things. And then ultimately what I wanted to do, and this is a, a big part of the book, but it's also a big part of my thesis as well, is kind of mapping out the history of anthropology's engagement with the paranormal. And that, actually, I was surprised to find that anthropologists have been interested in the paranormal um, going right the very beginnings of the discipline in the middle of the 19th century. So actually, anthropology has been involved with the paranormal for about you know 150 years. So what kind of stuff would they do back then? You know what I mean? Like if, if they were going that far, and we, we tend to think of, when we think of studying the paranormal, mm-hmm. we think of people with the ping pong balls over their eyes, or you, you think of the Zaner deck yeah. from Ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. So um, when they were kind of either documenting the phenomena or, or doing it, what were some of the situations that they find themselves in? So one of the earliest people to, one of the earliest anthropologists to really think about the paranormal seriously was actually... Um, Sir E. B. Tyler, who was one of the, is actually one of the founding fathers of anthropology, and he was the first chair in anthropology at Oxford University as well. So, you know, he is pretty much the first anthropologist, and he did, um, he did a bit of field work in Mexico and things, but when he was specifically thinking about mediumship, obviously he was working around about the same time that the spiritualist movement really kicked off, and what he did. Obviously, there was a really big craze for it and everyone was loving it. So he decided that he was going to go along and attend some seances. And he attended seances with some of the uh, the Victorian era's kind of most well-known and well-respected mediums. So he sat with um, Kate Fox, for example, who was one of the first, you know, one of the Fox sisters. Oh, yeah. The... Right. Um, he sat with her in London. He sat with Dee um, Dee Hume, who was a really... Uh, you know, a really important medium. He seemed to be able to do a lot of different kinds of things, levitations and all sorts of crazy stuff. And he sat with the Reverend Stanton Moses as well. So uh, what he did, basically, he wrote about his experiences with them. And in his, pri- in his private diaries, basically, he said that he'd seen things that he, th- he didn't think he could explain rationally. Okay, but he kept these ideas private. And he didn't publish them in his his mainstream kind of publications, where actually he was pretty much anti-spiritualism. So it's interesting with this first character early on in the in the history of anthropology, he had a personal fascination, he had personal experiences that challenged his worldview, but in public, he stuck with the kind of status quo with the um, like a hardcore evolutionist materialist view. And that's funny to me. That makes me think about. Uh... You know, it just so that's just part of human mm-hmm. nature. You know, when I, when I think about the uh, televangelists, yeah, you know, like the that that the, that are so religious and so holy and all like that, and they all get caught with yeah. hookers. Like nobody escapes the you know getting caught with hookers at some point mm-hmm. in time. And they're talking about family values and talking about all this, but they have a secret fascination with getting some on the side. And in science, it's ex- except for sex. Yeah. It's like, oh, I like I like to dabble in spirituality. Yeah, exactly. It is. And that was one of the things that I wanted to do when I started the Parentropology Journal was to make a place where people who had that kind of secret interest, where they could actually talk about it, you know, amongst people who are going to take them seriously and yeah, foster that that interest and see where it leads. So I, I know uh, when you were writing, some of the experiences that you talked about were what we're used to, a little bit more Western 
influenced, but mm-hmm. were extraordinarily things also experienced by anthropologists in non-Western settings in, yeah. you know, maybe some cultures that we might not be as familiar with? Yeah, definitely. And that's that's one of the most interesting things about anthropology and where anthropology can have this kind of expanding perspective um, on the paranormal. Because anthropologists, obviously, we have anthropologists who might deal with uh, things that we're familiar with, Western spirit mediumship, um, Western religions, and all those kinds of things. But we also have that extra comparative data from um, non-Western societies and indigenous cultures and different traditions. Well, when you're th- talking about E.B. Tyler, and, and you know, and maybe this goes for any of the, of the different people that have done mm-hmm. studies. So take a guy like you, like you said, he's down there working in Mexico, mm-hmm. places like that, uh, with these non-Western cultures, yeah. and then comes back and starts doing you know spiritualist stuff. Mm-hmm. Did he do any writing or anything like that ab- about how comparing how they they did stuff uh, in the non-Western and the Western culture? Well, yeah, he did. The, one of Tyler's most one the thing that Tyler's most famous for really is his concept of animism. We've, we know we've heard of animism as a belief in spirits and all those kinds of things, and it is a term that Tyler introduced into kind of the intellectual circle. And Tyler didn't see any difference between the kinds of things that were being practiced, the kind of magical religious practices that were taking place in Mexico, for example, and um, the kinds of practices the spirit spiritualists were doing in London at the time. Well, when I think animism, mm-hmm. I think, uh, and that, please correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. because it's been a long time since college and I did not pay that much attention. <laughs> but, you know, when I think animism, I think of, uh, we believe that the, 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 the trees have some kind of consciousness, yeah. that the, the river, that the environment has a consciousness around us, that everything has some kind of spirit associated with it. Mm-hmm. Am I way off here or? No, no, that's exactly it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And Tyler was the first person to, to like, from an anthropological perspective, to, to point that out. And he argued that it was the, um, the very foundational definition of religion. So if we, he said, if we look at religion and break it down to its most fundamental parts, what we find is belief in, in spirits. So he was really equating the, the high religions like uh, Catholicism and you know, Judaism and all of the big religions. He was equating those with these lower, well, in his terms, lower indigenous traditions. So we've also got to bear in mind the fact that he was working within this kind of broadly evolutionist framework where there were there was you know there were savages and then there was high culture right the sun never sets on the british empire yeah exactly so what he was what he part of what he was trying to do was to kind of bring down religion by associating it with these primitive beliefs which is um ah i see see what i mean yeah so um could we get into some stories of you know anthropologists um that you've read about that inspired you and and you know what? What were some details of cases that they investigated uh, in maybe you know far flung areas that show us the universality of paranormal experience? Well, there's one um, anthropologist who I've actually I'll, I'll talk about two anthropologists because there's there's two particular anthropologists that give a good view of both sides of the spectrum. And we move well, on. And because if there's if there's something better than one anthropologist, it's two anthropologists. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So we we'll jump forwards uh, a few decades from um, E. B. Tyler and just have a little think about a guy called Sir E. E. Evans Pritchard. And again, 
Evans Pritchard is a, a really significant figure in anthropology. He did a lot of uh, really influential books. One of his most famous books is called Witchcraft, Oracles and Magic Among the Azandi. And it's about um, the Azandi people in, in Sudan and about their witchcraft beliefs and all these kinds of things. And kind of hidden, it's, it's actually quite early on in the book, but hidden in the book, he, he references this experience he had while he was, um, one night he went outside of his hut, he was staying in, in part of the village, and he saw this uh, a disembodied light floating through the bush. And he followed it some way and then eventually lost track of it. And when he went back to tell uh, the villagers what he'd seen, they said, well, that was definitely witchcraft. You've definitely seen witchcraft. And then, um, so he writes about it in his book. And then, again, we're, we're moving one step further away from Tyler. So Tyler had those kinds of experiences, but didn't write about them in public. E.B. Tyler does write about them in public. I mean, um, Evans Pritchard does write about them in public. But then he goes on to say that it was probably just some grass lit by someone on their way to defecate. So he kind of like... As you do. Yeah, he turns it into a little bit of a toilet joke. And, it's, you know, it's this constant tension between, you know, the, the experiences that people actually have in the field and then telling people about those experiences without making yourself look crazy or as if you've gone native. Yeah, and, and so you feel like you have to uh, debase it in some way, yeah. you know, as, as to what you were saying about yeah. make it some kind of toilet humor to take away its significance. Exactly. And um, you know, before we get off that, because I want to hear about um, the other anthropologist that mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned as well, but you, you mentioned seeing, you know, like an orb of light. Me personally or e. Ta- uh, Evans Pritchard? Evans Pritchard. Yeah. yeah but um, I wanted to kind of relate that because a lot of our listenership is going to come from like a paranormal investigative background mm-hmm. where the the dominant conversation right now is about orbs. Yeah. And so I used to dispense with that because I know that on film orbs can be caused by so many things. Yeah. And so a lot of people just use it as automatic confirmation of spirits when they pick anything up on a camera and it you know I want to be sensitive to people's experience but I also have to make clear that Hey, look! There's a lot of other things that this could be, but then yeah, yeah, I go and I'm have definitely my. Not, when it comes to orbs, I'm definitely not sensitive. Right. I'm definitely not sensitive to other people's so, experiences. But then like, <laughs> I get kind of a kick in the pants from the universe, or that's how I interpret it. When I went to a location, then I was like, "This place is not haunted," mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And oh, yeah. I didn't expect. You know, it wasn't like I was priming myself, or I was. Oh yes, I'm going to see something tonight. In fact, it was the exact opposite. I had to put on a you know two hour presentation. That's what I was focused on, and uh, then at the end of that, I'm just stowing my stuff away. And what do I see? But a quarter sized uh, white sphere of light, or I guess light. I mean, it was it wasn't like gleaming or anything like that. But uh, it's it's this quarter sized sphere of white mm-hmm. coming towards me from across the room which, you know, flicks across the right side of my head, you know, like so close. I, I felt like it was going to touch me. Yeah. And what is that? Right. So, okay. So that's the dominant culture sees these orbs, you Mm -hmm. know, typically white orbs of light. Uh, and so I saw it with my own eyes. So now I have to be like, well, I can't just throw that out. (laughs) (laughs) What was that? 
as soon as you have that experience, it opens up the possibility. I know, right? I, I, I just, and I didn't even tell Mike that night, even though I was with him. I was with all kinds of people interviewing me, doing a paranormal investigation. I wasn't like, hey, guys, I just saw an orb. No. It was so, I, I don't know what happened exactly, but I, I'm, I'm going back and, and thinking it was so off-putting to me hmm. that I, I needed time to process it. And it's, so I didn't talk to anybody about it until that was Saturday until that next Monday after work, I called Mike and I was like, well, actually I did see something. And right. And we all were like, cause we're like, you know, there's some fun stories about the place, right. but we're like, this is, you know, this is not the, this is not crawling. with Right. Ghosts. This is you some know, dog and pony paranormal show. <laughs> this is, you know, that that's what my feeling was of the place. Mm-hmm. And then I hear this. And then ex- Allison has a story. Yeah. And like me, I have an experience, you know, cause I'm like nothing. I feel like nothing ever happens to me. Mm-hmm. Well, things do happen, but like 16 years apart and stuff like yeah. that. And, and they take like a second and then they're gone. But you know, the, the idea here is, oh, oh, and then, then too later on, you know, months later, somebody else is talking about their experience independent of me. And they had, they had, practically an identical experience with an orb coming across the room and like flying past their head. And then I didn't tell them about it. So it was really kind of unusual. So, but what I want to get to, there's, there's a lot of things in what I just said, but Mm -hmm. what I'm really trying to get to is, okay, so we have this limited view of seeing these orbs, but then um, I teach at a native American school. So I, whenever the opportunity presents, I do a sweat lodge Mm -hmm. And I have told, I have heard stories for, for many years of people seeing lights in the sweat lodge and they will describe them in a very different way. They're not um, these white orbs, mm-hmm. but instead they're, they're kind of like um, starburst, like multi-colored sparks of light right. that, and are recognized as spirits by people in the sweat lodge. Now, unfortunately, I haven't seen them with my own eyes, uh, but it, it was just interesting to me to note the way different spirits present. Yeah. Like they're, they're noticing those as spirits, and then the dominant culture notices these these white uh, circular, these white spherical shapes. Yeah, it's, it is interesting. When we talk, thinking about like universal characteristics of experiences and things, the fact that you can have an experience of seeing an orb you know, in, I don't know where you were, in Wisconsin or whatever. You can have, yep, in Wisconsin. You can have um, Native American people experiencing orbs in their sweat lodges. And then I myself could have the experience of little flashing lights flying around in a seance in Bristol. So there seems to be something, you know, something going on there that, that's more than just cultural. I mean, we layer our cultural interpretations on it, but at the end of the day, it's just people seeing um, balls of light or little flashes, isn't it? Right. And it's Evans Pritchard seeing it in uh, yeah, the Sudan. in the 1920s. And so the, uh, right, we didn't have like drones yeah. <laughs> or things like that, yeah. you know? Because uh, really, really what you saw, Allison, was a, uh, an NSA camera. Oh, it was? I thought it was yeah, swamp gas. <laughs> <laughs> they usually fly past. It's the deep state. They want to know what you're. They really are. They really give a damn about do, ghost hunters. Um, yeah, but I, no. But let's yeah, hear. I, yeah, let's hear some more stories. Sorry, Jack. Yeah. Well, the other anthropologist I was going to mention was um, actually probably an anthropologist who's had a, maybe the biggest influence on me, and that's Edith Turner. I can't remember actually if I maybe I talked about her on the last last time I did an interview with you, but I'll go over it. But that's okay. <laughs> yeah. We can go for it yeah, she was, again. Yeah. She was really great. Um, the the experience that 
that she had that most inspired me was when she was working with the Ndembu in Zambia, and she participated in this ritual called the Yahamba ceremony. And she basically, the, the purpose of the ritual is to extract this malignant spirit that's entered into the body of the afflicted patient. So it's kind of like a spirit possession kind of thing. And they do this ritual, which is a long, like, very physical, like dancing and clapping and getting involved. So she she had previously witnessed this ritual before with her husband, like 20, 30 years earlier. And then after he died, she'd gone back to the field again to participate. And this time she let herself flow with the, with the ritual and, and really allow it to move her. And then at the climax of the ritual, again, we're talking about these kinds of blobs of energy or something, but she, she witnessed this, um, she described it as a gray kind of plasma-like blob being extracted from the back of the, the patient. And she saw it clearly with her own eyes. And in her writing about it, she, she describes it so vividly. And the other, other members of, of the, the ritual also saw it. So she saw this as her point of kind of entry into their, um, into their cosmology, into their, their life world, where she could, she could have the same kinds of experiences as, as her informants were having. And then the really bold thing she'd ended about it was go ahead and write about it and publish it in an academic journal, you know, as, a, as an ethnographic document. Well, as a scientist, how do you not freak <laughs> out? Like maybe that's part of the job description is like must, you know, needs to not freak out when seeing gray blobs <laughs> yeah. out of the back of somebody. But how do you keep, I think about myself and I've only had a, a couple of weird mm-hmm. experiences in my life. Um, and I kind of didn't freak out, but people with me freaked out. I freaked out on touch, but I think, you know, I told everybody about it. I was slapping five. I'm like, I can't believe I had that experience. It's unbelievable. Um, you know, how does, you know, I, I think about, uh, Edith Turner or whatever. She sees something that to me would be like, okay, mm-hmm. here's proof of something out there. How do you, uh, you know, how do you keep your, uh, objectivity when you kind of just want to freak out and, you know, high five all the, yeah. all the natives? <laughs> I mean. How do you keep your objectivity? Is there such a is there such a thing as objectivity? And I think that's a part of what the anthropologists, the role of the anthropologist, really ought to be, is to to report back accurately their experiences. You know, no matter how subjective or objective, they're reporting back their experiences as a participant in that particular moment. And you know, that in itself should we should be able to treat that as valid scientific data. We should be at a point now where we can use someone's experiences, you know, because we know we know most of the time people don't lie about these things. Um, if you're an anthropologist, you're expected to be, you know, you, you've been trained in academic discipline. We've got to take these uh, these accounts from anthropologists seriously, really. I think I've uh, recently, you know, had conversations with uh People, you know, a little bit more skeptical mm-hmm. than maybe I am. I, you know, I consider myself a true skeptic, yeah. but, um, it, you know, on the, on the spectrum of things, but, uh, you know, there's a little bit, um, pe- of people who are thought of as more typical, uh, skeptics, but, um, are also open mm-hmm. that I've opened a, a discussion with. And, you know, one of them said to me that, you know, when I reported that orb story to him and, and was like, what, what just happened? You know, I was, I, I really just wanted to talk about it. I, cause I, I w- wasn't expecting to see that. I, you know, obviously I didn't talk to anybody mm-hmm. about it, uh, you know, until that, 
that Monday after, yeah. it was really startling for me and embarrassing too, <laughs> because it's like, here's a place where I'm like, if there's any place that's not haunted, it's this place. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, the other thing is I, I don't want to see an orb, you know, I just, it just seemed like I'm going to tell people and this is going to mark me. So, mm. I mean, it has characteristics, which, which I didn't want to deal with. You know, it, it, it if I had to, to choose something to see, it wouldn't have been that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, because this podcast is yeah. not a safe space for orbs. <laughs> well, stories. I just mean that, you know, <laughs> when I talked to a skeptic about it, he said, well, I've learned not to trust my senses. And mm. I can understand that idea to a point yeah. because, you know, we all know there's 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 lots of illusions mm -hmm. out there, optical and and otherwise. And so we have to be aware that, you know, sometimes uh, what we see or what we experience is, you know, maybe not as accurate as yeah. we'd like. And, and, and that is part of the condition altogether because we have so much sensory input coming in and we're not addressing yeah. it all. Um, but, you know, I just wanted to see what you thought about that because what I thought about that is, well, dude, you know, if you don't, if you don't trust your senses, I mean, if, if none of us ever trusted our sentences, we wouldn't have any data yeah. uh, for science uh, to grow out of. Exactly. So I think there's a couple of interesting issues to unpack with this. First of all, going back to your experience and how um, you, you say that you weren't, you weren't anticipating that kind of experience. Um, if you were, if you were going to choose to have an experience, then you wouldn't choose to have the experience of an orb, for example. So it's interesting how there's this interplay between belief and expectation. Okay, so we can we know that if you believe more in psi, for example, then you ha you show greater psi effect in the lab. So we know there's a there's a role of belief, but there's also something that is um, kind of like unpredictable. There's still a kernel of something that's um, that seems to be independent of our belief and expectation. So obviously you weren't expecting anything, and if you were expecting something, it wouldn't have been an orb, and yet you still see it. You see an orb. So there seems to be something more than just belief and expectation. So that's one thing. And then the other thing that I find interesting. This is actually something that came up in my um, my viva for my PhD. Um, was this idea about how about whether we can actually um, experience reality firsthand? Okay, so one of my examiners, Angela Voss, brought up the fact that this idea that we can't perceive reality directly comes from the philosopher Immanuel Kant. And Immanuel Kant basically said in the 18th century <laughs> that um, there, is, there is this world called the noumenal world, and then there is a world called the phenomenal world. The noumenal world is the world that we, we can never gain access to because we, we always come at it through our own uh, physical bodies and through our cultural concepts and all those kinds of things. So we only ever gain a, a grasp of the phenomenal world. Okay. But really, this is just an assumption. And if we look at a lot of the, a, a lot of different traditions, maybe other kinds of indigenous traditions or esoteric traditions or any other kind of, of tradition that doesn't rely on Kant, um, then they believe that it is possible that we can have direct experience of the world. So what I'm interested in, for example, is what our direct experience of consciousness, for example, can tell us about consciousness itself. And what I'm saying is that we don't have to be, there's room for 
subjectivity in science. I think that's where I'm going. And that we can have accurate observations of of the real world because we are enmeshed within the real world. I don't know if I've gone off on a tangent there, but... <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I like it. And I, I, first of all, first of all, Kant is in the guy's name. I prefer Immanuel <laughs> yeah. Kant. Exactly. Um, but no, but that idea that, I mean, of course, there needs to be room uh, for some kind of subjectivity in science. And the reason it does is because when we act like everything's objective and you don't include the context of the scientist, mm-hmm. the observer, the person doing it, then um, you're I, I feel like then the results are more open to either manipulation or, and, and especially in this day and age where different media mm-hmm. outlets will manipulate whatever they can find to be more yeah. advantageous to whoever's paying their bills. That I mean, that's the, that's the nature of the world and that's yeah. okay. It's what we have to <laughs> deal with. Um, but also, I mean, that's why with, w- when you're looking at research and that's why journals look at um, mm-hmm. the context of the experiment. And that's why you have it to be accredited. And um, you have people yeah. peer review it mm-hmm. before it goes on to, to try and do that. Like you were saying before, anthropologists go out there and they're trained for years to not lose their crap yeah. when something magical happens to them on, on location. And, um, and we should trust in the, a little bit that what they're telling us actually happen to them and they're just reporting it to the best of their ability or even if it's not the whole picture that we get from their report we can at least you know we can at least say that something happened because there there would be no point in writing about it if it hadn't unless you were totally faking the whole thing (laughs) right in order right in order to get in a journal or or to get a speaking tour or a book dealer it's interesting though because the, the the climate against talking about these things in academia is really strong so for someone to for for an anthropologist or for a scholar to actually persevere and want to get their story published in that way suggests that you know there's more to it that that there's there's a reason that they want to have these stories published in an academic journal and it's amazing when they, they they actually do make it through and there are so many when you start to when you start to research, as I found over the last seven years, there's so many anthropologists who reported these strange experiences, and all that, all that really differs is the extent to which each anthropologist is happy about talking about it in public. Sure. Well, you know, something I was thinking about when I was uh, browsing through the book is there a particular essay or thing that you have in there that you may be the most proud of, or you think encapsulates your worldview or, you know, what's your favorite chapter when you're like, Oh man, like what's, what's the (laughs) single, what's the hit single out of engaging the anomaly? Oh, that's a good question. I think, um, really the first couple of chapters are really useful because they're the, they're the chapters that lay out this, the history of anthropology's engagement with the paranormal. So if you read those, then you slowly build up um, a good picture of how anthropology has dealt with the paranormal. So I think those first two chapters are really useful. They also touch on the, the idea of ontological flooding, which I've been toying with, and which actually you wrote a song about. <laughs> That's right. So let's hear, but um, those of us that might not remember, or anybody in the, in the audience who hasn't listened to that episode yet, let's go through your idea of ontological flooding, because I think it's a cool one. Yeah, so basically, it's an idea that emerged from my observation that in the social sciences, so in like in anthropology, religious studies, psychology, 
they tend to try and put a bracket around um, issues of ontology, so questions about whether things actually exist or not. So for a mainstream uh, sociologist or a main, you know, mainstream anthropologist, they might study something like religious beliefs, for example, without necessarily asking whether whether God really exists or whether the things that they believe in really exist. So they put brackets around that question so they don't have to deal with it. And then they get on with the much easier task of dealing with um, with belief and how people, you know, how people believe and how people think about things without wondering about whether these things are actually real. So my idea is that if you get rid of those brackets and then face up to the uh, the, the question of ontology directly and playfully engage mm-hmm. with it in that way, then you should be able to move into kind of more fruitful areas of uh, of inquiry and investigation. So that's basically the idea. Yeah. When it comes to ontological flooding and using that, what kind of example would you been uh, maybe that you've seen in anthropologists or, you know, you yourself, what's a good example of something that's happened to you when you've been out there doing research? Mm-hmm. I know you've done a ton yep. of research into mediumship. And is there anything maybe in, in that area where you can give yeah. the layman like me a little more concrete example? Basically, with, with my idea of ontological flooding, it means that as a as an anthropologist or as an ethnographer or just as anyone who's going into a situation and experiencing it um, directly, that you have to be open to multiple possible um, influencing factors. Uh, and that might also include multiple different um, explanatory theories as well. So the, a really good example that I use and that is kind of the, the, the core of my thesis in a way is uh, spirit mediumship. So for example, if you look at um, spirit mediumship around the world, and then you look at the kind of the anthropological and psychological theories and explanations for it, then you you generally end up with you know like two or three key ideas: either that spirit possession is uh, some kind of pathology, some kind of a neurological problem, or is to do with uh, is some kind of illness or disease. Okay, so with that thought right there, so the idea that that spiritual mm-hmm. possession, and we're talking about mediumship, we mean like when the medium. So if, if you get the idea, it's like when Demi Moore was talking through Whoopi Goldberg and Ghost, right? Yeah, so it, yeah. it's that it's like you're you are possessed, not necessarily in the exorcist demonic possession, but you're yes. possessed in the way of the spirit is talking through you. Yeah, that's what I should something I should make clear because in um, in the kind of um, the paranormal community, when we talk about spirit possession, you you probably think of like the exorcist or something like that. Whereas um, in anthropology, spirit possession is a much more kind of general term. That applies to different kinds of mediumship traditions and de- basically any kind of tradition where the the, the medium or the individual um, incorporates the spirit into their body. So it could be negative, and a lot of people do associate spirit possession with um, you know with negative demons and things um, infecting their bodies. But spirit possession, from an anthropological perspective, can also include mediumship as well. So uh, yeah, I understand that can be a bit confusing, but that's what I mean. Right. And so, okay. And so the idea that there's a, um, like you said, like a pathology associated with it, there's something wrong with you if you think you're possessed by a spirit. That's one possible explanation. Yeah. Or there's something wrong with you if you, um, if you go into a trance or things like that. And these are, these are popular explanations as well. So a lot of people would like, would tend to think that that's the case. Okay. So that's one kind of explanation. Another explanation is that it is some kind of, um, a cognitive, misfiring or if there's something wrong in the 
something either wrong in the way that people are thinking about things or people about are thinking about things um well they, they're using processes of thinking that apply to one situation and are trying to apply it to another one and that results in um, a kind of an error so they have an anomalous experience okay uh, that's like the cognitive um explanation it's similar to when you think about uh, pareidolia and things like that where you think that you see a face in in a tree um and actually, it's just your brain kind of con- concocting that face. Sure. When Alice and I grew up, we had a um, we had a stone over the fireplace <laughs> that looked exactly like William Shakespeare, and we all saw it. Like anybody who was over there was like, that, <laughs> "That's so true. That is William Shakespeare." Yeah. And um, and without even pointing it out to each other, whatever you all saw it. So, uh, I like to call that explanation the Shakespeare explanation. Yeah. Of spirit possession. Exactly. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> So the idea is that, you know, we should, we should naturally pick up on faces in the environment anyway, because it's good for us to be able to spot predators and all those kinds of things. So when we have an anomalous experience like that, we're just, um, we're, we're misplacing one cognitive process onto another one. So we're using a, an otherwise useful cognitive process on a rock or on a tree. Okay. But that, again, that's a very reductive way of thinking about things. So, so far we've got pathology, uh, cognitive illusions. Um, there are other ones like um, some some anthropologists might interpret spirit mediumship purely as a performance, so as a kind of a dance, and they would put it on the same kind of level as as other kinds of cultural performances. Or some anthropologists interpret spirit possession and mediumship as a form of protest, for example. So people who have who have a lower status um, might practice mediumship because when they're possessed or ostensibly possessed by a spirit, it gives them a higher social status. Okay, so you have all of these different kinds of theories and explanations of uh, mediumship, and each one of them tends to think that they've kind of sorted it all out already. So the the social protest guys say, right, yeah, we've sorted spirit possession out. It's basically just a form of social protest. The cognitive guys say, we've sorted spirit possession out. All it is is a cognitive illusion. And the pathological guys say, we've sorted it all out. It's just illness. It's some kind of brain disorder. But none of those explanations involve ghosts going into your body. And that's my preferred explanation. Exactly. And none of those explanations um, touch on the kind of parapsychological evidence, in which there is a lot of evidence that certain individuals are able to do certain strange things, like even in laboratory conditions. So where ontological flooding comes in is that we have all of these different explanations on the table. And instead of assuming that we can pick one and that's going to provide us with a happy, you know, full, complete explanation, we have to be open to all of them simultaneously, um, as well as others. So, for example, we have to be open to the possibility that there may be real spirits involved. We have to be open to the possibility that it might be some kind of illness, or we have to be open to the possibility that there is some kind of like a social functional protest kind of thing going on. And actually, in reality, it's all of these things, you know, mixing together at the same time that give rise to the experience as a whole. So ontological flooding really means that we have to take seriously how complex it is and not try and not try and explain it in 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 terms that are too simple. Do, do you see what I mean? Oh, absolutely. And you know, I, I was trying to think of, especially when we're talking about mediumship, spirit possession. Um, we, we think of the seance, mm-hmm. you know, we think ectoplasm, we think of, uh, manifestations of a ghost, like popping out of the closet, raps on the desk and yeah. things. And so w- when you were doing research and I know you talk about this in the book too, mm-hmm. engaging the anomalous out this Wednesday, everybody, <laughs> but you, you talk about this in the book, what kind of seances and stuff did you go to? And 
was there any, you know, stuff happens mm-hmm. and, and there, but was there anything that um, you were like, oh man, I can't, like, I never thought this would happen to me or yeah. something like that. Cause we've all been to so many ghost hunts and events and things like that. And a lot of times it's a big fat nothing burger. Yeah. So when something does happen, it's, it's shot. It's shocking in a way. It's like, holy crap, something's going on here that I don't quite get. Yeah. And so I just, you know, what was one of those things that happened to you? And then mm-hmm. when you put your anthropologist hat on, and I think of it as like a deer stalker cap is what you're going <laughs> to yeah. use as your anthropologist. I mean, whatever hat could be, could be a wide brim, animal jack. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, the fedora, perfecto. Um, so what kind of happened? And then what did you, you know, when you put the anthropologist part mm. on, uh, what were the different ways you were looking at what you think you might have saw? Well, and again, I can't remember if I've talked about this before or not, but <laughs> the, the, the That's key... Okay. For me, the most um, important experience that I had during my field work was, and it only happened a couple of times um, quite early on, but it was when my hand actually seemed to be possessed. I'd, I can't remember again, like if I already talked about this or not. No, no, hand possession is good all the time. <laughs> so the, it was one session where the medium um, couldn't turn up. So they decided they were going to do like an open development sitting and anyone who was in the room would be kind of would be in a meditative state and they would say like spirits um uh, we're allowing you to let let yourselves be known through anyone in the room so it's kind of opening ourselves the, the whole group up to the to the spirits and you know i wasn't expecting anything particularly unusual was going to happen i was just thinking of it as a, a meditation or some kind of an opportunity to relax and listen to the music in the warm seance room and they dim the lights down and everyone would just sit there and meditate. But um, as I was doing this, I felt that my heart rate started to increase and I felt um, like a tingling in my hands, you know, like when you get pins and needles in your hands. And then all of a sudden my left hand started to move of its own accord. It it was a really strange, uh, really strange state because I felt I could feel my body doing things that I wasn't willing it to do. And I was aware of the fact. So it was almost as though I was observing my own body doing something that I knew I wasn't doing. <laughs> and the reason this was, this was such an important experience for me is because it gave me that extra experiential insight into what it feels like to, um, to allow spirits to, to move into your body or to allow yourself to be um, overtaken by spirit. So that was, that was the, probably the weirdest experience I had. And also the most important as an anthropologist, because it helped me to understand. Let's break that down though. Okay. So you felt like you lost control Mm -hmm. of your hand. What are three different scientific experts? I mean, there's a, there's number one, the idea that a spirit could have came in, took over your hand, be like, well, sweet. You know, this is, (laughs) it's a hand party. It's evil dead too. (laughs) Um, and then, like, what are some other aspects you could approach it? So another aspect could be, for example, some kind of a dissociative state. So perhaps I I had entered into because um, dissociation is um is something that they talk about in in psychiatry, where we we kind of have this capacity to distance ourselves from our bodies. So, for example, in times of stress or times of trauma, it might be um you know kind of like uh, useful for us to be able to separate ourselves from our body in some way okay that can be taken either way um you could see that as a complete explanation so he just had a a kind of dissociative episode and that's what happened or you could take it which is perhaps where i'm going with my idea of ontological flooding that 
dissociation is a part of a wider process of allowing spirits to make themselves known through your body, possibly. <laughs> okay, so that's, an, that's another explanation. And I suppose the third one could be that I'm just making the whole thing up. Right, that you, th- you wanted a cool story for your book. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that I wanted a, co- a cool story to, to write about in my, well, it was my undergraduate dissertation at the time. Well, I'm going to interject right here and just uh, say that, um, you know, so this ontological flooding that you're talking about, you know, I love the idea of, you know, the accuracy of it because, you know, it's, it's uh, I think it's cross-disciplinary, it, it, it's mm-hmm. uh, holistic. You know, and it's like yeah. there, there's that uh, that little story that um, of blind people in a room, and and there there's an elephant in there with them, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then you know, one one person is, is feeling, you know, I, I this just came to mind. I don't even know how it goes, but you know, one one yeah. person has the tail in their hand. It's like it's it's like a I, I don't know. It's like a broom. It's like a brush. And then somebody else has, has the trunk and they're like, you know, what is this thing? It's like a vacuum cleaner, or, you know, and, <laughs> and the other one has, has, you know, like a toss. Oh no, it's like a dagger. Right. There's so, uh, so many, uh, you know, everybody is just mm-hmm. like taking a piece of it and nobody yeah. is getting that it's an elephant. Exactly. Yeah. It's like everyone is so focused on their specific kind of explanation that they fail to see the the kind of bigger picture and how all the different the different ideas that people are coming up with touching different parts of the elephant if we take them all together and put them together then we get a you know a more complete image of what's going on rather than thinking that it is just a, a broom or it is just a, a snake or whatever it is uh yeah that, that's what ontological flooding is it's taking the, the whole elephant <laughs> for itself and one, just one more thing, I, I you know, so mm-hmm. I, I noticed that you mentioned Margaret Mead in your book. And if there's any, um, yeah, if there's any real anthropologist that has name rec- recognition, I think it's Margaret Mead. And definitely, and, yeah. and so I, I just wanted to know, like, you know, what what was her experience with all of this? I mean, what were her conclusions uh, about, you know, the reality of people's experience? Margaret Mead is. Obviously, she is um, one of the biggest names in anthropology, but it's also a little-known fact that if it wasn't for Margaret Mead, the Parapsychological Association would never have become a member of the American Academy of Sciences. What? It was actually, yeah, it was Margaret Mead's kind of clout as a well-respected anthropologist and her support for parapsychological research that ultimately lent gave the Parapsychological Association enough kind of credence to become a member of the uh, DA. AS. So yeah, she was a, a big influence on it. And she'd done um, parapsychological experiments with a parapsychologist called Gardner Murphy. She'd done those classic um, Zenicard experiments. And she'd been, you know, she, to her mind anyway, it had been demonstrated that we do have some kind of a, a telepathic ability. So she was particularly interested in what she, what she said was she was interested in exploring the kind of psychodynamics behind um, psychic sensitives. So the psychological and all the different factors that lead that that enable psychic sensitives to be so uh, well psychically sensitive. <laughs> now, when we're talking about um, psychic sensitives, the, the first thing that we always think of, or at least that I always think of, and take me as the average Western culture layman, mm-hmm. um, would be okay. Well, psychic sensitive would be like a shaman, or you yeah. know that right, uh, and. Mm-hmm. What so 
if, if you take a shaman in indigenous cultures, and I guess we're all indigenous to somewhere, um, but yeah. it, but if you think of what we think of as non-Western indigenous cultures, yeah. um, and we take the shaman, do, do we find examples of individuals with kind of, not necessarily superpowers, but some mm-hmm. kind of advanced power from all different kinds of cultures, like we think of a shaman in one of Margaret Mead's tribes or whatever, are there yeah. analogs all over in, you know, all over the cultures of the world from Western to. Yeah. Yes, there are definitely. And are, are there similar ways that they like initiations or that they go through to get to that, those, you know, superpowers? Yeah, there are. <laughs> this is one of the, the interesting things about it because it's so tempting to say that, for example, the shaman, um, in the Amazon is doing exactly the same thing as the spirit medium in London or the spirit medium in Bristol or something, or that the the uh, the yaki sorcerer is doing exactly the same thing as the voodoo priest. But I think really it's much more complicated than that. When we do look at them and we do compare cross-culturally, what we see is um, kind of key ideas that keep cropping up or key techniques and processes. So although they have completely different um, kind of cultural baggage attached to them, um, they, they, may, they have completely different cosmologies and completely different interpretations. There are certain core things that everyone seems to use to kind of to get in touch with this um, invisible or spiritual world or how, whatever we want to call it. So examples would be things like altered states of consciousness. So most Magical religious practitioners employ some kind of altered state of consciousness to make contact with this world. And then there are all of the different techniques that that exist for people to put themselves into these altered states. So we get sensory deprivation and ingesting psychoactive substances or some kind of hyper stimulation or like physical exertion or whatever. There are these key key things that people use around the world so it's not to say that they're all doing exactly the same thing but they are using similar kinds of processes and similar kinds of techniques they just um pad around them with um particular ideologies really so yeah and this brings to mind um i I can't remember which culture it is, but apparently you know i was reading um like a year or so back about a culture that um or the the people who are becoming uh, shamans in in that um, in that group, uh, they will take the children and that have been identified as having these skills, and they grow up in a cave in darkness. Yeah. Um. Do Do you recall what I'm talking about, Jack? Yeah, I do. I can't remember the name of the the people at the moment, but I do know the story. And then. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll look that up too because you know that 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 they live for twelve less years maybe even more mm-hmm. years you know isolated from society yeah. uh in this dark cave until they come out and experience the world for real uh, yes just yeah for real like a, a fresh perspective well that's like <laughs> professor x's right. school for gifted children but it sucks <laughs> well you know it's it's just something that that just really mm-hmm. grabbed me this idea of living in darkness, uh, you know, for your young life, for your childhood, uh, you know, maybe 12 to 18 years. I'll, I'll look that up so that we can put some more information about it in the, in the show notes, because I know I have the article yeah. somewhere, uh, probably under the bed. Uh, but I, I was just fascinated, you know, by that, you know, the, the links that, that some cultures go to. Yeah, I think it's a really good idea, uh, a good kind of illustration of ontological flooding as well. So you would 
you would spend all of that time in the cave. You'd be taught by your teachers what the world is like and all of these kinds of things. And then there comes a point where you have to step outside of the cave and see how it all fits together. And that's what they do. So they, they learn about the animals and they learn about the trees and they learn about the rivers and they learn about the weather and all these kinds of things. Kind of like, um, you know, like we talk about book learning and things. And then when you go out into the, the real world, you see how actually all of these disparate pieces of knowledge that you've been given connect together in one holistic kind of um, system. And that's almost very, that's a universal human thing is that, you know, when you think about people growing up to be monks or priests or anything, they enter the monastery, they enter the mm -hmm. seminary from a young age, you know, and then they, they have to go through the, the, this training and stuff like that to become, uh, you know, in the spiritual tradition. And you think about that seems to be a universal thing is that it's, it's grooming people. Like we need to have spiritual leaders. And so we groom them, yeah. to, you know, create them and across cultures too. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that we, in the Western world, we are not doing that so much yet anymore. I mean, it's not, a, it's not a part of our culture to have these, you know, these special people who can give us information that we can't gain in any other way. Maybe that's, somewhere or at some point maybe that's somewhere where our culture has kind of gone off the track and has, has become a little bit confused in some ways maybe well think about it do you guys know anybody in your personal life that grew up to be a priest uh no nope. <laughs> <laughs> no you know you don't i mean i have I've, I've known one person in my entire life who said yeah i considered the seminary yeah you know and but and nobody else. I mean, I know a lot of people who've got that reverendship in the Universal Life Church or whatever. Yeah, that's <laughs> so me. they can marry I'm, people. I'm a right? well, actually, I, I'm a Dudist priest. I forgot about that. <laughs> All right. Okay. And so we ha we also have a priest <laughs> in the Big Lebowski tradition. Yeah, yeah. and and I, I I became a reverend so uh, I could uh, so I could perform the marriage ceremony as well. So a I forgot that. But that idea with the 150 people, like if you think of. <laughs> If you think of all the people, we you know they say 150 people, right, mm -hmm. in your circle is what we're like our mind can handle, and so you think of the 450 people we we know um, together, mm -hmm. and none of us know somebody that grew up to be a priest. No, uh, in the in the Western tradition, as we would call it, mm -hmm. then that's I mean, what's the percentage of that? That's point zero, mm. you know, three percent or whatever. Uh, and, and so that's just a funny thing. I think of we were talking about shaman and, and how we we're kind of losing that tradition of the West. Mm -hmm. And uh, we absolutely are losing that tradition of the West. Yeah. And for good or for bad, that's just the way it yeah, is. And, and it maybe is. just losing spirituality as a whole and our connection to nature. Because I know you've done a lot of work on that as well, Jack. And, you know, you've been very yes. generous with your time. But we want to give you an opportunity, too, to uh, talk about um, how we go forward and, um, mm -hmm. you know, how we can use use these things like animism to make the world a better place, because I know you're very actively involved in that as well. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so this is where I seem to be being drawn at the moment and moving towards thinking about how to further contextualize um, the paranormal and all of these kinds of things that I've been thinking about into um, a wider kind of ecological perspective. So, for example, in my research with, with anthropology, what I've what I've tried to do is show how the paranormal is enmeshed within cultures. That culture has an influence on the paranormal and all those kinds of things. That that the paranormal is enmeshed within our biology. 
you know, that our physical bodies have a role in all of that as well. And also that there is something else that we seem to be um, interacting with. And the next logical step for me seems to be then to locate all of those processes that I've been talking about within the, the wider systems of, of our planet, with, of ecology, of the plants and the animals and the wind and all of these kinds of things that we live in. But then also, I think once you start doing that and realizing how interconnected all these systems are, then it spreads out and out and out and out and it continues on to like the multiverse and all those kinds of things. So that the idea is to bring, to put the paranormal in its context as it occurs within nature, not as something that's separate from nature, but as something that is the kind of fundamental aspect of it. So taking the super out of the supernatural. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or calling all of nature super, <laughs> whichever way you want to think about sure. it. Um, so one idea that I've been toying with recently is, I don't know if you've ever come across the term, uh, the greening of religion, but the idea is that, because um, there, and this is something I talked about in a podcast the other day with um, Andy Letcher, as I've been recording these One School, One Planet podcasts recently, just half hour episodes about ecology and permaculture. But he was saying how, from a, on a pragmatic level, um, one of the best things we could try and do is try and convince the, the, the kind of global religions that we need to take ecology seriously and that we need to realize that we're a part of our ecological systems. And this is called the greening of religion. So we're trying to encourage, you know, religion, religionists to engage with ecology and to see how important it is that we, you know, to realize that we're a part of this system. And I think we can do a similar kind of thing with the paranormal. And we know how extremely widespread and popular the paranormal is. So many people interested in it all around the world. It doesn't matter who you talk to, that people are interested in it, whether they don't believe in it or not. So I'm wondering now whether it might, whether we might be able to kind of tap into that energy of the, the whole of the paranormal community and build in this wider, this deeper ecological context into our discussions so that, you know, when we go out to do our paranormal investigations and things we're we're doing that within a within this deeper understanding that everything that's taking place in the world is taking place in nature so i think that's something that i'm i'm toying with the idea at the moment i think an edited book might be um, a good way of exploring that with different perspectives from different writers so that's something to look out for in the future I'm going to try and get that off the ground. Sure. Well, any way we can help, uh, let us know, because that sounds like something that uh, we would really uh, yeah. support wholeheartedly. Well, everybody, you know, everybody hates pollution. Yeah. And everybody hates litter. Yeah. And so we find ways to uh, make it paranormally advantageous yeah. to not pollute and not litter. We're always up for doing that. And I think it's a great idea. And for, okay, so where can people listen to your p podcast, Jack? So, um it's actually, it's on YouTube as well. So that's probably the easiest way to find it. If you just type in One School, One Planet on YouTube, we've got six episodes up there at the moment. And the podcast is about permaculture, ecology, and education, because um, I'm involved in this educational project to try and develop a permaculture textbook for secondary schools. But our conversations, because of my own background and my own interests, our conversations get a little bit cosmic at times. <laughs> and um, Well, sure. Which is good. And um, we've been interviewing people. We interviewed a theologian about um, at Chester Cathedral about permaculture. 
and how she's been trying to bring permaculture into the church there. And I also interviewed, um, like I said earlier, uh, Dr. Andy Letcher, who's teaching a new master's course in ecology and spirituality. So there is a lot of scope for, for thinking about these things. And this is, this is just one thing that I've been thinking about as well, how we tend to, we think in like ecology and spirituality, and then ecology and the paranormal sounds like something that, that shouldn't go together. But I think, um, I think they should. And uh, the paranormal is, is a kind of like a backwater of spirituality that people have been too afraid to kind of <laughs> to touch for too long. But actually the connections with ecology and the connections with the way that we deal with, live in and interact with the world are, are really kind of stark and obvious once you start to think about it. It's all to do with relationships and how we interact with different kinds of minds and different kinds of worlds. It's really interesting stuff. Well, I think that's uh, I mean that's something that's in the in the world of paranormal itself. You have like people who are like Wiccans, mm -hmm. you know, who have the magic and earth based magic and things like that, who are very interested in ecology. Yeah, and it, it's almost it almost parallels the, the scientific uh, community in that. Yeah, then there's the the side of the paranormal that thinks that by using their electromagnetic field meters, that you know. Mm -hmm. They're doing uh, Darwin's work out there, <laughs> yeah. and so you ha you ha you know you have the the difference between the two. Yeah, definitely. And uh, and so finding ways to bring them more together, um, where we can have these conversations and say like, well, this is the 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 environment uh, which is creating the swamp gas that's causing these experiences. <laughs> hey. I, I I have to interject too that um you know because you mentioned uh, Wicca mm -hmm. uh, that um. You know, one of the side projects I'm working on was this is why I'm so frazzled is that um, we have um, in our hometown, there's a there's a beaver problem, apparently. And uh, uh, the local public works director wants to, you know, just euthanize them. But, um, you know, I'm working with others to, you know, try to get them uh, relocated in the best way possible. Mm -hmm. And when I reached out for help. Uh, one of the persons um, I, I reached out to was Selena Fox, um, our high priestess here in uh, Wisconsin. Mm. Um, and uh, she's been on the show before. And so she she was like the first person to get back to me and think think about it seriously and, and reach out to others in her network uh, to try to help me uh, relocate these beavers. And uh, so she as far as taking it seriously. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, you don't, you don't think, oh, I'm going to call the witch now to help me out, but you know, maybe you should, yeah, well, because the, those are the, the people that, that uh, make magic by getting things done. And, uh, so th there's a definite connection there um, among the witches. Yeah. And I've got, of course, mention the Fae because, uh, they hate when you don't mention them. Yeah. Very wise. <laughs> Sensible. There you go. Uh, so I got to say, thank you. Jack for spending your time with us today and thank you for sharing your wisdom and your open mind and everything like that uh, with the See You on the Other Side community. We absolutely appreciate that. Um, this new book coming out, I want you to check it out. It's going to be in the show notes. You're going to be able to uh, grab your copy. We're going to link directly yeah. to it. Engaging the Anomalous, Collected Essays on Anthropology, the Paranormal, Mediumship, and Extraordinary Experience by Dr. Jack Hunter. You guys are going to love it. I've been reading it all weekend and enjoying it. Don't be scared by uh, the academic part of it. It's pretty easy to read, and you're going to hear some really cool stories. So I heartily recommend it. Lovely. Thank you very much. So thank you, Allison and Jack, for, for joining me in that conversation. 
Uh, hope everybody got something out of it. Yes, thanks. And Mike, are you feeling ready to investigate now? Yes, I am. I'm actually... I am too. I, I feel like after talking to him, um, he gives me hope. Because sometimes you sometimes you talk to paranormal investigators, and I hate to be like this, but sometimes you talk to paranormal investigators, and you're just like, oh God, like this is the same thing, and some of it's a little too woo-woo for me, and I don't believe it kind yeah. of stuff. And then you get to talk to academics who are trying um, some different things, and trying to have a scientific perspective and then trying to actually use journal articles and academia and everything to forward the cause. And that gives me hope for the future. Me too. And we've been doing more and more investigating ourselves Mm -hmm. ever since we started this podcast even. And so it's just, I like to have, you know, being being a science-minded person myself, I really like having that uh, end of it covered. (laughs) Right. It is obviously a field where you know, we don't have all of the tools to be able to explore things scientifically. So some of it does require that you just go based on feelings and emotions and stuff right. like that. But but boy, is it nice to have that evidence, mm-hmm. you know, and have other things to back it up. Yeah. It's good stuff. And I think uh, Jack's point, and he talks about this in the book, really that when you try to look at all perspectives and try not to just reduce it down to one explanation, and that's really what his ontological flooding, that's what uh, this Engaging the Anomalous book is about. And so if you guys are interested in, even if you're just interested in anthropology, even if you just like to read books about people who used to live with indigenous tribes and peoples and things like that in the world, you're going to get something out of this book. So great. That's my recommendation. Um, All right. All right. But it's coming down to songs uh, that are in the same vein as this conversation. Uh, when you read the first, like the, just the introduction to Engaging the Anomalous, what struck me right away was how difficult a path this is uh, for an academic to take. For a researcher, for a scientist, for someone who cares about studying things, this is not the easiest subject to talk to other academics about. And that's for sure. <laughs> I really respect it. Dr. Hunter. What a sweet. First of all, that would be if I was a doctor, I'd want to be something like <laughs> Dr. Hunter. Sounds like he it's should have so his own, perfect. Yeah, his own comic book. He wants to you could have his own comic book where he's investigating paranormal phenomena with indigenous peoples all over the world. And I would read that comic book. That would be perfect. But it's a hard thing to do. And it, you're really you are up against like 90 percent of a community that doesn't, you know, that's really interested in this stuff, but doesn't want to admit it. That's something that Dr. Uh, Raiden talked about in the last episode. He's like, well, when I talk and I say, who's interested in psychic phenomena? Every single person raises their hand. And then he goes, how many people are going to admit to researching it? And nobody raises their hands. So you're really up against the wall and it's a tough thing to do. And we thought that was perfect for uh, a Sunspot song about what happens uh, when when you do the hardest thing you possibly can. And Wendy... What's that song? The song is The Path of Most Resistance. Turn it up.
Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. Ooh, we can't forget to say thanks to our good friend, Dr. Ned. That's right. Dr. Ned is a Patreon superhero. He's at the level where he gets a special shout out in every single episode. So thank you, Dr. Ned. And thank you to our entire Patreon community. Oh, my gosh. And yes. We're going to be you. we're going to be seeing them. What, Wendy, I can't remember. When are we only seeing these guys oh, again. Mike. You got to get it on your calendar huge here. It's Wednesday, May 9th at 7.30 Central Time. We're all going to be hanging out and uh, it's going to be a blast. I can't wait. Uh, okay. All right. I am putting it on my calendar huge right now. <laughs> In fact, I'm not even using the, uh, the the dry erase board marker. I'm using, permit, I'm using oh permanent marker so I okay. do not forget. Good job. And if anybody wants to join us for that, it's not too late. Mm-mm. You can join the community even right now today. That's right. At othersidepodcast.com slash donate. So thanks for listening and have a great week. All right. What's up, Jack? What's up, Jack? Oh, no, no, no. We say, what's up, Doc? Oh, my God. Because he's a doctor now.